Great. So we're going to carry on with our series looking at Haggai. We've um, hit second of the two chapters. So we're going to be Haggai chapter two. We're going to look at verses one to nine, but I'm going to break that down into two sections. Um, so I'm going to pray. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. Haggai chapter two, verse one. Um, but let's pray. Father, I thank you. Um, thank you that you speak. Thank you that um, thank you you've got good plans for us. Thank you that you've got good plans for your church. You've got good plans for this earth. Um, and Father, we love that we get to be a part of that. Um, so Father, I ask that we would hear again, we'd be open to hear what you're saying to us as your people, as your church this morning. Um, so Father, give us, give us ears to hear, give us receptive hearts. Um, and Lord, we ask that, yeah, what you say would just, would land, would, would take root um, and would bear good fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me read this for you, chapter one, uh, chapter two. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Okay, so let's pick it up here. We are at this point, one month on from the... That from Israel actually starting rebuilding. So you remember in chapter one, we see the kind of challenge and the word of the Lord comes to them, kind of stirring them up to kind of to rebuild. Um, and, and they say, yes, we looked, Phil looked at that two weeks ago, actually the power of hearing the word of the Lord and obeying, like amazing things can happen. So that had happened. So they'd started building and this is one month later. So they've made a start, started to put their hands to rebuilding the temple of God. Um, and one month in, God comes um, with this new word, this new encouragement. And there are three things that I want to pull out from these first few verses, really briefly, um, that God does. So they've, they've started, you know, presumably they put some foundations, some footings, you know, maybe they've got you know, a few rows of bricks. So there's some stuff in place. Um, but he comes to them and he acknowledges um, where they're at. He comes and acknowledges the process. He comes to remind them of his promise and he comes to um, challenge them, encourage them again in that, in that work. So verse 3, we see this acknowledgement of the current situation. Let me read it to you. It says this, Who of you um, who's left among you who saw this house, who saw the temple in its former glory? So before it was destroyed and before they were sent into exile, who of you remembers what that was like? And he says, How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So there's an acknowledgement from the Lord. Listen, I get this doesn't look like all that much right now. There's an acknowledgement of there is a process um, and potentially it looks a little underwhelming when they're the particular place in the process they're at right now because the, you know, the reality is you know, this, that temple that was rebuilt, this second temple, which is the temple um, that Jesus would have gone to in his day, the second temple was like it wasn't really a patch on Solomon's temple, that first temple, in terms of its scale, its size, and also you know, its, its kind of grandeur, its lavishness. It actually, it wasn't the same. And certainly at the point we find ourselves here, they were, you know, a few bricks in a wall. Like they, they really weren't that far on in the process. And if you read in 1 and 2 Chronicles, like Solomon's temple was like crazy off the chart lavish. It says, you know, the interior was overlaid with gold and there was these incredible wood carvings and precious stones. Like it was, it was stunning. People from all over the world would come and see it. It was, you know, it was a stunning temple. So there's acknowledgement in comparison to that. Do you remember that? 
yeah, this isn't quite that, is it? It's an acknowledgement, a reality to, yeah, this is where we're at. We are in the process of rebuilding, and um, maybe en route, it doesn't look super impressive. So there's that acknowledgement, first and foremost. Then there's this reminder, there's this remember of God's promise. So he specifically reminds them of his promise way back when. So he even references Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt. So before they came back, before David, before Solomon, before that temple, he said, listen, I made a covenant with you, and my spirit remains with you. So there's that reminder from the past, listener, I've promised, I've made a covenant with you. Yes, we acknowledge the process, but that promise remains. And then we hear this repeated promise that you know, we hear so often through the Old Testament. And when God speaks to Israel, and he says, but I'm with you. It's that reminder, um, I'm with you. That God hasn't changed his mind. And then the third thing is this challenge. He says, because of that, because of the promise, because of the covenant I made with you, my spirit remains with you. So be strong. He speaks to them. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people says, be strong and do the work. So there's that acknowledgement of the process, you know, reminder of the promise, and that encouragement, that challenge to keep going. And then he moves on in the next, we'll pick up from verse 6. So we've, we've sort of seen God remind them of the past and the promise. We've seen him kind of acknowledge the present in terms of the process they're in and remind them that he's with them in that immediate but then he goes future. So he goes past, present, and then he goes future with this amazing um, prophetic promise um, looking, looking forward into the future. So from verse 6, let's read on. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So we need to understand when we're reading this, that this was, um, you know, God was speaking a specific prophetic promise to a specific group of people. Okay, so that was God talking to Israel two and a half thousand years ago as they were rebuilding an actual real physical temple like actually I think he was talking about the temple that he was building and so when he says listen you know the treasures is going to come in I think he's talking about actual provision wealth like he actually was speaking into that situation but the thing you know we've looked at a couple of times is we need to be really clear and understand that this is also a this is also a prophetic picture of the church okay so the bible has often had talks in types so he'll God will speak about something and it's it's a type it's pointing forwards to something you know, a spiritual reality that, that isn't quite there yet. So yes, he's speaking to Israel two and a half thousand years ago, but he's speaking two and a half thousand years ago actually to a future day, which you and I get to be part of. So when he talks about the, the latter house, the house that is going to be built, that's going to be more glorious than the former, he's talking about the church. He's talking about you and I as a temple of God and the church. Um, so he's talking about things that are to come. So the promise that once again I'll shake all nations. Actually... It's talking about actually the shaking that happened when the kingdom of God was ushered in, in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Some translations say when it says the treasures of all nations, some translations say and the desired of nations will come. And most scholars would understand that that is, that is a messianic promise. That is a promise pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the desired of nations and he will come and in this place there will be great peace. We see that in Isaiah, that promise. The increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. 
So he's looking forward to the, the future day. Yes, he's talking about a physical temple they're rebuilding and encouraging them in that task, but he's also pointing forwards um, to the second temple beyond physical. That's you and I, the coming of the kingdom of God. So the rule and the reign of Jesus coming and his glory filling the temple, which is you and I, which is the church. So that's one of the things we need to understand. When he's talking about this house, which will be more glorious than the former, he's actually talking to you and I. He's talking to you. He's talking about the church that you and I are a part of. So there's this amazing promise and purpose that's spoken both about us but also to us. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's really important. Like, how many of you know, when the Lord speaks something, when God, you know, makes a promise, he speaks a word of purpose to us, about us, like, it's an invitation for us to partner with that. It isn't just to sort of we sit back with this sort of fatalistic, oh, well, God says it and he'll make it happen some point in the future and I have nothing to do with that now there's stuff for us to do and so I want to look at this understanding okay he's talking about this promise of greater glory that's to come in the church and back then that was a future promise right now that is a current promise right like that future started with Jesus so we're in those days of greater glory and but yes it's a promise to the Lord yes that's his purpose that's his plan that's what he prophesied but you and I have a part to play like what do we do about that so i want to suggest there are three things beginning with c i want to look at consecration contentment and commitment in response to this word um, so firstly consecration i want us to rewind temporarily um, do you remember in the first chapter of haggai if you, if you weren't with us if you've not read it that the story starts um with the Israel had been miraculously come back from exile. You know, they initially rebuilt an altar and then there was an awful lot of opposition. They got super discouraged and everything stopped. So for 15 years, nothing happened. And then Haggai is raised up to come and encourage them. So essentially, Israel had kind of started, but then they'd got distracted. And it says, you know, they'd got on with kind of farming and building the houses and getting married and having children and kind of doing life. Um, None of which is wrong. Like none of those things are bad. If you like the Bible's got an awful lot to say about about work and and wealth and marriage and children like those are good and godly things but what God says to them is listen you know you're you're planting but you're not reaping you know there's kind of you're not gaining from the effort you're putting in and he says in chapter one he says it's because of my house that remains in a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house so essentially they'd got their priorities skewed they'd got busy with their stuff and their life while the temple of God his house was in ruin. So they'd been discouraged, the work had stopped, and then they just got totally distracted with everyday life. And, you know, the Lord says, listen, essentially, this is, the, this, is, this is what he's saying. Nothing that they will put in their hands to, and I think nothing that we are going to put our hands to is going to really flourish, really have longevity, really have purpose and meaning if, if that primary place of Jesus isn't established. So then, you know, the temple represented then the that was the place where mankind met God in a physical temple. Like now we know the place where we meet with God is through Jesus. Like Jesus is the one who mediates that relationship. And so while the, you know, the charge and the challenge to Israel back then was, listen, you need to rebuild my house. Like that needs to be your focus right now. For us, actually, it's a call to consecration for our lives. That actually, like Jesus is first and foremost. Our priorities are in order. So I think it's really important before we kind of unpack and understand what is it that kind of the challenges in chapter two, we just remind ourselves and think, okay, have I, 
Have I understood and have I personally, for myself, have I implemented that call to consecration? Actually, totally consecrated to Jesus. You know, Paul says in Corinthians that actually Jesus is the one foundation. Like He is the only foundation. There's loads of other stuff that we want to build in our life, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But if that foundational place of Jesus as, yes, our Savior, but absolutely also Lord, then things are missing it. Like It's not okay for us to be thankful for him as Savior, but not confess him and live in a way that he's Lord over the whole of our lives. Okay, so what, it's, it's what Jesus said, listen, seek first the kingdom and then all these other things will be added to you. That's what consecration means, is that my priorities are in order. I'm building my life on the foundation of Jesus and he is my first and foremost. My, you know, your most pressing need is your connection with Father God. That's the primary focus. So yes, it's time to build. Like Yes, it's time for restoration, individually and corporately. Yes, there's absolutely a greater glory promised to the church, but we must have our foundations straight. Jesus is Lord, and we need to be consecrated, which means basically means set apart for him and his purposes, above and beyond anything else that we put our hands to. So actually, so to walk into that greater glory, we need to understand there's a really important place for consecration. Secondly, contentment. This is about understanding that in all of God's promises and all of his purpose, there is always a process. And we have to be okay with acknowledging and embracing the process. That's why I actually, I love that God said, do you remember that old temple? Yeah, this doesn't look all that, does it? Like he acknowledged the reality of the situation. I'm not convinced we're so good at that in the church. Actually acknowledging and embracing that actually I'm in process. And I don't know why that is. I don't know whether in some way we think, and if I acknowledge that I'm in process, that, ah, do you know what, actually, I'm, I'm struggling with anxiety or my finances are in order or I'm in a mess or actually my relationship with my parents is really not good. We're acknowledging there's some process that in somehow that threatens God's promise, which if you think about it, it's ridiculous. As if I'm me and my stuff is big enough to derail the eternal promises of God. That's a ridiculous thing to think about. But actually, honestly, I think that's part of what's going on where we're not okay to acknowledge we are in process. So I think contentment is this ability for you and I to acknowledge and embrace the process, but without losing hope, without settling for well, where I'm at in the process, well, this is, you know, this is as good as it gets, and we just sit back and we settle. Because we can be content without losing hope, without dumbing down our expectations for the future, without stopping believing that there is a glorious future for you and I as individuals in the church. So contentment is not about settling. So for, for Israel, it's not about saying, well, we've got you know, three rows of bricks and that'll do. That's not what it is. But it's like, hey, this is okay. Like we're, we're further on than we were. We're not where we want to be, but we're further on than we were. And okay, let's be okay with that. So contentment is really important. Paul says in Philippians, I think he says, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to have lack. But I've learned the secret of contentment. So what he's telling us is, listen, Contentment is nothing to do with the externals of my life and the situation I'm in. It's nothing to do with that. It's an inside job. That I'm content. Do you know what? There's an amazing future for me, and I'm nearer it today than I was yesterday, but I've still got some way to go, and I'm okay with that. Not about settling, not about compromise, but about contentment that is different, about being okay. I'm in process. And the reason we can be okay in the process is because of his unshakable promise that he's with us. 
in the middle of the process. And my process is nowhere near big enough to derail the eternal purposes of God, and neither is yours. However big you think your stuff is, it's just not big enough to derail what God's promised and purposed. So let's be content with process, but not be passive. Because that brings on to the third thing. The third thing is commitment, is understanding that in me taking my place in, in the promises of God, it requires me to take my place and to and play my part. It actually means that I need to both look forward and also move forward. Not just, oh, there's a lovely promise over there somewhere. But it's like, actually, I'm going to commit to taking steps towards that. And it requires effort and it requires work, which is actually what God said. You know, he said, be strong. He said, I'm with you. He said, I've not changed my mind, but work. It's a very simple command. And we you know, love hearing God's promise. I'm with you, Sarah. I'm not always so keen on Sarah. Work. Like, do, like, do some work. It requires effort. There's a, you know, there is a glorious future, but it's going to require some effort to get there. When we were um, this Christmas, we were asking our kids what they wanted for Christmas, and um, Luke wanted trainers, standard. Like, how many more trainers do you need? Okay, trainers. Abby wanted her room made over. She wanted her room redecorated. I was like, okay, we can do that. And so she got busy on Pinterest. She's quite creative. She's quite like Phil. She's got an eye for these things. So she had this whole Pinterest board. So she had a color scheme picked out. She had scatter cushions she wanted and lampshades and like light box, you name it. Like there was this whole glorious vision of the future of Abby's room, um, which I was like, okay, great. We can do that. So I managed to kind of find bits and pieces to give her for Christmas and then said, listen, you know, in the new year, I will repaint your room. Um, so I got, you know, I, I do the decorating in our house. I'm pretty handy at it. I'm not, I've done a lot of it. I'm, I'm all right at it. So I've got the whole box with, you know, clothes and dust sheets and rollers and masking tape and all the rest of it. I've got all the stuff. And I had her sort of Pinterest board. And I think we tried about five different shades of grey before we were like, yes, that's the one. But, like, we had the stuff. So I had the vision. I had the tools and the equipment. But then there's the point where it's like, I just need to get on and do it. Like, a painting's hard work. Honestly, at points, it's a bit dull. And if you... We live in an old house. Our house is, like, early 1900s, I think. A big old Victorian house. You know, it's lovely. But when you're decorating a house... Who else lives in an old house? Like, when you're living in a house like that, before you can put any paint on the wall, there is a lot of filling holes and sanding and kind of doing the edges along the skirting boards. And, like... And in, initially, in the process towards Abby's, you know, dream new bedroom, it looked way worse. It's like, this looks worse than it did when, before we started. It looks nothing like the big Pinterest board, but we're in process. But honestly, it just required effort, work, and there weren't any other shortcuts. You and I need to understand that that's what our lives are looking like. Don't ignore the glorious Pinterest board. Don't ignore the fact that there's an amazing future, but be okay with the fact at points... It gets messy, and sometimes you're like, oh, this, this looks worse than it did, and I'd rather, you know, I'd rather, you know, Abby could have settled for, well, I'll just have my old room, because, you know, at least it's sort of sorted and ordered and tidy, well, not tidy, but sort of done. Or, at, but that's what we do in our lives sometimes, like, actually, do you know what? I'm just going to settle for what I have, because the effort and potentially the kind of, the process of getting into the new, it just looks like a bit too much like hard work. Sometimes we need to understand that actually that process of as individuals being restored and rebuilt, it's going to cost us something. And listen, we need to be okay with that. And in one of our highest values as a church family is that we're a place where people are going to be empowered into everything that God's called them to be. And so that requires restoration and rebuilding. And I want to encourage you, like acknowledge you're in process 
and em like embrace the tools to get there. So one of the most valuable tools we have as a church family is the Freedom Course, which you know, Sarah Howard has developed over years, and Emma Hodges is doing a beautiful job at leading and refining. And it's, it's coming up again. It starts again next month. And it's a six-week course, with just, and it's just a time and a space to say, well, okay, Jesus said it's for freedom. Paul says it in Galatians. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And the reality is, you know, we, we're in a measure of freedom, but for all of us, like, we are works in process, and there's stuff that holds us back. There's stuff that trips us up, and it's so easy for us to settle for those things and just kind of tolerate them, and rather than being willing to acknowledge I'm in process, not have to put a nice Sunday Christian mask on, I'm fine, everything's fine. But actually, the Freedom Course is an amazing opportunity to invest some time and some effort and some vulnerability, and it'll cost you maybe something, but actually to get you more into the plan and the purposes and the promise of God for your life. It's so worth it. So I want to encourage you. We're going to start talking about it over the next few weeks. If you've not done the Freedom Course or you haven't done it for a while, I want to encourage you to do it. Like it is just, it's just something we want the whole of our church family to do. It's a really beautiful way that actually God does some stunning rebuilding and restoring work in individuals. So I encourage you with that. But listen, it, it requires commitment. It requires effort on our part. But it's because of this amazing future. It's because of this greater glory that God has promised to the church. So we need to understand. God says, who, you know, who of you remembers the former house? He's talking about Solomon's temple. And he's like, this, you know, he's like, this doesn't look that much, does it? But the glory of this house that you're building now is going to be greater than the former. So we need to understand actually just what was the glory of the former because we need to, our expectations need to be higher than that, right? Now listen, it wasn't just about the sort of peripherals, the physical at all. The thing that was the most glorious thing about Solomon's temple was the fact that God's presence was there. So the Ark of the Covenant, the box where God's presence was, was in that temple. And if you read in 2 Chronicles 7, when the temple's finished and, and Solomon's dedicating the temple, um, it says that the glory of God came in such a way that every single person in the temple just hit the deck. Like such a profound encounter with the reality of the glory and the presence of God that people just like on their faces couldn't even stand up but, but what this when I read this bit in Haggai 2 I'm like actually we should not settle for the high point of God's people encountering his glory to be two and a half thousand years ago in Solomon's temple because actually my bible says the glory for you and I is greater than that but again we settle for less so often if you think about it, then the presence of God was in a box. It was in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, his presence is in you and me. We are now carriers of the presence of God. It's so much more glorious. I want to read you um, a verse that I just can't escape from at the moment. It's Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. This is a J.B. Phillips translation. Um, she's talking about the church. And I want you to listen to this. This is why the latter glory is greater. It says this, God has placed everything under the power of Christ, and has set him up as head of everything for the church. For the church is his body, and in that body, so in the church, lives fully the one who fills the whole wide universe. That is a crazy statement. Like, I, I want to make sure, like, you can just read it and go, oh, yeah, that. Listen to what it's saying. The one who fills the whole wide universe, Jesus lives fully in that body, in the church, in you and I. That's insane. That's why the latter glory is greater. 
It's because it's Christ in you, it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. In that body of the church lives fully, not partially, not occasionally, not might do in the future, lives fully the one who fills the whole wide universe. And listen, I know it doesn't always look like that. Like, I know it doesn't always feel like that because I'm part of the church and you're part of it. Like, I know. And I know we can be like Israel and, and the potential is that we can look at the sort of where we're up to in the process and think, oh, this looks a little underwhelming. This doesn't quite look like what we were hoping or quite look like God promised and we can kind of get discouraged in the way. But listen, we just need to lift our eyes up. So, but that, that just is what God said. Whether you see it, recognize it, feel it, agree with it, frankly, is neither here nor there. It just is what God said. That in the body of Christ, in the church, corporately, lives fully the one who fills the whole universe. And we need to understand that, listen, this is... These promises, need, we have to understand that there is an individual and a corporate outworking and understanding of them, okay? Because the body, you know, when Paul's talking about the, the body of Christ, he uses the analogy of a physical body and says, listen, everyone, not everyone's a hand, not everyone's a foot. People are different and we need all of it. So living, Jesus living fully, that is not just in me, okay? That, is, that needs all of us for him to be fully present, okay? But... Absolutely, you have an individual part to play. So we have to understand, uh, personally, I think almost all of the promises of God we, we read in the Bible, I can take hold of individually for myself, but absolutely they get worked out corporately as us as the body of Christ. It's both and. So this rebuilding, this restoration process that God is calling them to, that we see right the way through particularly the Old Testament, this promise of restoration. It's a call to restoration of individuals because we are living stones, remember? But it's a call to restoration of the corporate body because it says, you know, you are living stones being built together to be a temple where God lives by his spirit. So it's the individual and it's the corporate. We have to understand that. So I need to understand that. I need to commit to that restoration process in my life, individually. That's not your job or your responsibility. It's not the church's. That's my responsibility. And it requires commitment on my part. But I absolutely need to understand that, listen, there is a restoration of the church that Jesus is passionately about as well. And we have a part to play in that. This analogy really helped me. I, I don't know if you've heard the story before of um, back in the 60s in the US. It was the space race. It was the kind of the race to get the first man on the moon. And um, the story goes that John F. Kennedy, the president at the time, goes to visit the NASA um, station. He's walking around and, and seeing what's happening. And, and he meets a guy who's the caretaker. And he's sweeping up. So he works in NASA and he's sweeping up. And, and the president says, hey, sir, what, you know, what, what's your role here? And the guy's response is amazing. He says, I am helping put a man on the moon. So he's a janitor, he's a caretaker sweeping up. But what he recognizes he's doing is he understands, actually, I'm, I am an individual doing an individual job, but I'm part of something a whole lot bigger than sweeping the floor right now. And actually, the bit that I'm doing right now absolutely has a place to play. He understood the individual and the corporate and the big vision and the glorious future. Do you understand that? Honestly, I think we miss that so often in the church. The danger is we do one of two things. We either miss the big vision and we, and we don't understand, which is why, you know, like that verse in Ephesians, I can't, and I keep bringing it everywhere I'm going at the moment. Actually, it fully, lives fully. The one who fills the whole universe lives fully in the church. Like we have to have that, that big vision 
actually remember in the first week I spoke, actually God's master plan is that all things would find their fulfillment and perfection in Jesus. So the danger is that that janitor, he lost sight of the big vision and the, you know, the big, amazing, putting someone on a moon. And he gets, and I think we can do the same. We can get so consumed with our stuff. You know, my job, my mundane sweeping the floor feels insignificant because we've, it's been completely detached and we've lost sight of the big vision. But the other thing we can do is we can, we can understand that there's a big vision, but what we don't understand is that there's somehow a disconnect between that big vision and my individual life right now. And so he's like, well, yeah, they're putting man on the moon and I'm just sweeping, and there's no significance or influence from what he's doing. But that guy understood there is significance and there is influence and there is value on what I am doing as an individual, as simple as it is, as mundane as it is, it's part of something way more glorious. That's how we have to understand and work out the promises of God, as individuals and corporately. Make sense? So you have to have your eyes on the big vision. You have to keep, sometimes we're like, Sarah, get your eyes off yourself and just look at Jesus again. Have to understand the glorious picture. But equally, know there's a direct link that actually my life has influence. Your life has significance. And so actually that brings a weight of responsibility as well which is why that commitment and consecration is so important because your life is significant. God's promised greater glory for the church and we live in those days. And it's not good enough to put that off to some future event. That's for you and I for now, for Manchester, for this church. It just is. But we need to understand we have a part to play in that and there is a process as well. There is some work that God needs to do both in me and I would think probably you, but also through me and through you in order for the fullness of that promise to be outworked. Because this is, this is the thing. You know, Mark said it. We are convinced, I am unshakably convinced, that the church is God's plan A for humanity. And I'm absolutely certain there's not a plan B. So the thing is, folks, we're it. It's you and I. But listen, we don't need to be... Uh, phased by that because Christ in us is the hope of glory. It's not me and anything I've got to bring or offer. It's him in me. But there is a real significance on us as individuals and as we're built together as a church family to us as a corporate body. But we have to take our place. We have to make sure our priority is in order. We have to make sure that we are absolutely consecrated to Jesus. Yes, as Savior, but absolutely as Lord. Like, compromise over those things. Like, it's dulling down the voice of the church. Like, we lose our authority when we, comp- when we compromise rather than live consecrated. And that's not good enough. But we have to be okay with process. We have to be content to embrace the season we're in and know none of it's wasted. Like, he's getting you ready. He's getting the church ready. But we need to take our place. But, like, don't be so... Sometimes we can be so aware of our stuff. Like, I'm so aware that I've got so much further to go. I'm so aware of my stuff. But my stuff is not bigger than the purposes and the promises of God. And so I have to learn to live content, acknowledging I am a work in progress, and that's okay. But I'm not going to settle here because I believe in a glorious future. I believe it for me, and I believe it for you. And I believe it for us. But that requires commitment as God's kids, as his people, to say, I'm not going to let anything hold me back. I want to run. I want to move towards that future, not just sit back and wait till it happens. It's for us. It's for you and I to take hold of and run with. So why don't you stand and I want us to pray for one another.